Well, can I thank you for um, the invitation to come and speak here? I've got to say that I absolutely don't see myself as a conference speaker at all, uh, but my arm was ever so gently twisted, so here I am. Uh, and I have to say at the outset, I'm also not an academic. Um, I was talking uh, with a group outside. Um, I'm, I'm a vicar of quite a small church, a suburban church, a normal evangelical church um, uh, on the western side of Stafford. And, um, but unusually, we have quite a lot of theological academics uh, at the church, and um, including Ros, uh, of course. And uh, somebody asked me not long ago, is how come you have so many uh, of these uh, academics in, in your church because it's not we're not a university town or anything like that and uh, and so I said well God clearly knows how inept I am and has to surround me with very very clever people um, but conversely I am very very good for their humility um, so I'm not an academic I'm a regular vicar um, but I do have to have this interest in the history of the doctrine of sanctification within evangelicalism in the last 200 years. So that interest in holiness theology way, began way back in 1986, not when I was at Oak Hill. Uh, some of you I know from talking earlier weren't born in 1986, but uh, it began in 1986 when I was just 19 years old. Now, my godly, godly grandmother took me to the convention, the Keswick Convention, every year um, from 1975 onwards. And I was converted at Keswick at the age of 14. I went forward at the Christian service meeting at the age of 18. So Keswick became hugely, hugely important in my own Christian life. And I, not only that, I was uh, evangelistic. I was a huge advocate of Keswick. So age 19, having spent one year at university, I decided I was going to take some of my uni friends to Keswick because they needed to experience what I'd experienced, the blessing of being at Keswick with all these thousands of other Christians. So we all bunked down in my grand's little caravan that we'd borrowed. Uh, me, the 19-year-old veteran of Keswick, uh, dragged all my uni friends uh, to all the meetings. You see, to me, Keswick was a little slice of heaven here on earth. Nothing, nothing could dent my confidence in how brilliant Keswick was and had always been. So I was utterly shocked when at an evening meeting that week, the new chairman of the Keswick Convention, uh, Philip Hacking, who some of you might have heard of, got up to preach on the subject of holiness. And I'm going to quote to you exactly what he said on that night, because I've got it transcribed from uh, the Keswick Week book. He said this, It is said in some books that there was a day when a doctrine was preached at Keswick which suggested that you let go and let God. And you entered into a realm where from now on it would always be peace. You moved from Romans 7 with its battle into Romans 8 with its victory and you never go back to Romans 7. Well, I don't know whether that was ever preached here. It hasn't in my time. It actually had. Stay tuned. <laughs> but if it was, I think with great respect to our forefathers, it was unbiblical. For there is no suggestion in the New Testament that I can enter in by a kind of passive resignation and from now on, 
In the life in the spirit, the conflict is gone. I was shocked. I was shocked that night. And it got me thinking, it got me interested. And that's when I read up on some of the history of Keswick. And I began to collect books of old sermons. And so when I had the opportunity at God's own theological college in North London, I chose to do my long dissertation on that subject. And during my research, I was privileged to either speak to, interview, or correspond with some giants of evangelicalism. John Stott, Alec Mateer, Jim Packer, Philip Hacking, Bishop Morris Wood, and giants of the Keswick movement that you may not have heard of, people like Stephen Olford. Now, some of my research, even though it was an undergraduate level, was primary research, particularly my interviews with John Stott and my correspondence with Alec Mateer, which are reproduced in the appendices of my final dissertation. And the then vice principal of Elk Hill, Chris Green, read some of it. He looked at me and said, Philip, this is evangelical dynamite. And some of what I tell you in these sessions may shock you or may even make you rethink what you presumed about various evangelical characters or organisations. My research focus was on how the doctrine of sanctification changed at Keswick. And the official title, and I've got a copy of my dissertation here, was this, an investigation into the primary influences of change in the doctrine of sanctification at the Keswick Convention. And since I wrote that almost 20 years ago now, I've lectured on the subject at God's Own Theological College in North London. I've also, in that time, become the honorary archivist of the Keswick Convention, taking over from Andy Greenoff's dad um, from that. But I also have a kind of bizarre, detailed knowledge of Keswick history. So I also help people writing books or doing their own academic research. So I've recently been working with a couple of PhD students. And um, I've also been working with Tim Chester on some work he's been doing about John Stott at Keswick. Uh, I've got to say, uh, I never, they never usually let me out of my cupboard. I usually just help other people uh, do stuff. So it's unusual for me to actually come and stand and talk about this stuff. It is a subject I could talk about for, for hours and hours and hours. When I wrote my dissertation, I had to cut 5,000 words out to get it down to 15,000 words. Um, so you can, you can sort of see where I'm at with that. So after that big, long introduction, let's crack on. Be warned, I cannot cover all the side issues, so I might touch on certain things without unpacking them. There might be doctrines or bits of church history that I'm only mentioning for context. So the subject of personal holiness has always been a big deal since the early church onwards. You see it being tackled by lots of the New Testament writers, Paul in Romans 5 to 8. But of course, by Peter and also John, that reiterated call from Leviticus, be holy, for I am holy, quoted by Peter in 1 Peter 1 verse 16. So the call is clear, but the question is, how do we become holy? What happens if we constantly fail in being holy. Well, of course, throughout church history, these are big issues that big characters have wrestled with. Personal holiness is tough. Why? Because it's at odds with our sinful nature. 
We know that we should be holy, but very often we just don't want to be. St. Augustine once famously prayed, Lord, grant me holiness, but not yet. And in his book, Confessions, he talks about his own painful turning from a life and unholiness to a more holy life living under God's lordship. Thomas Aquinas dealt with the subject at length. He gave three pieces of advice, three stages of holiness, and they're not bad advice. First, he said, distance yourself from sin and wrong inclinations. Second, work on cultivating virtues in your life. Third, rest in loving union with God. Of course, it was his own lack of personal holiness and failed attempts at various disciplines that drove Martin Luther to look again at what Scripture said about being right with God. Well, I could go on and on about various different characters and movements, but for the purposes of these talks, we do need to at least get into the 18th and 19th century. And of course, key players at that stage were Lee Gatiss' favourites, the Wesleys. Whilst at Oxford, their peers sneeringly called them and their friends the Holy Club. John Wesley's primary focus was on the doctrine of salvation and the relationship between grace, faith and holiness of heart and life. His understanding of the holiness part of that was based on Matthew 5, verse 48. Be perfect, therefore, as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now, Luther and Calvin tended to view that verse in the absolute sense, i.e. do things perfectly. But Wesley understood it in a more theological sense, having to do with maturity of character and an ever-increasing love for God. A teaching that basically suggests that there is a gradual ascent to being holy, The Christian life is like a hill you can climb. And as you go along with the help of the Holy Spirit, you grow in your maturity and love for God. Therefore, you become more holy, ascending towards being perfect. And of course, that means that if you get to the top of the hill, then perfection is definitely not out of the question in this life. So how did that kind of teaching evolve into mainstream evangelicalism? Well, to a large extent, it all began in America, and it grew out of this Wesleyan holiness teaching. But as we'll see, there are significant differences between traditional Wesleyan holiness teaching and the newer evangelical holiness movements of the mid to late 19th century. But in America, the main mover and shaker was a woman called Phoebe Palmer. Now, Phoebe Palmer was born 1807. She died in 1874. She was born into an English Wesleyan family, and she emigrated to the United States as a child. But she was steeped in this Wesleyan perfectionist theology. But for Phoebe and other Americans it really wasn't a very popular idea. Why? Well, it simply wasn't quick enough. Remember, America is the inventor of fast food. America is the inventor of drive through food. And so no one wanted to spend a lifetime inching up a hill of perfection and holiness. No, Americans wanted fast holiness. 
an American church history historian, John McElhenney, says this. Phoebe Palmer thought Wesleyan holiness was too slow for Americans, who are, as one historian has said, restless optimists, boosters and bolsters, always on the go. Wesley's insistence that there's always more holiness to be achieved than has already been acquired smacked of Europe, where people often devoted centuries to building a stone cathedral. (laughs) Throw up a wooden church quickly. That's the American way. So if holiness was worth having, Americans wanted a supplier with a sense of hurry. Phoebe Palmer stepped forward. We'll come back to the theology and doctrine later, but at a very basic level, Palmer had this winning formula of how to get holy quick. And she set up these touring holiness meetings that were very lively gatherings, usually packed to the doors. They were more like more primitive revivalist meetings that became popular at the turn of the 19th and 20th century. There was loud singing that led people into a very heightened state of emotion. Phoebe herself would then speak, she would preach, and she would tell people that what they needed to do was to say and to mean from the heart, I surrender all of my life to Christ, I give it all, I hold nothing back, And then God, honouring your sacrifice, will keep the scriptural promise to sanctify you. He will make you a holy person. And the basic idea was that because Christ died, you can receive holiness for free. The free gift of sanctification as a blessing, as a gift of his grace. Just surrender all of your life to Christ, then Bob's your uncle, you become a holy person. You become holy, and so you have no need to sin anymore. And we'll see, it's based on an interpretation of Romans 6. So with her husband, Walter, Phoebe Palmer became a massively popular speaker with her holiness teaching. Literally thousands attended their rallies and got this special blessing of holiness. And they received what they called the higher Christian life of holiness. I suppose, in a sense, it's human nature to want to have an experience. As we've seen in the last 50 years in this country and across the pond, people will come if there is an experience to be had. I remember clearly when I was at God's own theological college in North London, standing on a tube platform facing a huge poster of Benny Hinn. And it just said on it, come and see miracles happen. That's all, the date and the time at Earl's Court. Well, the Palmers heavily influenced lots of people, including uh, the Booths, Catherine and William of Salvation Army fame. They were also influential in setting up lots of temperance movements in the UK and in the USA. But Palmer herself never returned to England. It was another couple, another husband and wife team, who were pretty much responsible for this teaching taking off in the UK. And they were Hannah and Robert Pearsall Smith. In particular, Hannah Pearsall Smith, born in 1832, sometimes also known by her maiden name, Hannah Whittle Smith. Uh, She used both, we'll see why in a minute. In her later writings, she tended to use her maiden name. 
Although she never attended Keswick, she was probably the most influential person in its formation. Hannah was heavily influenced by Phoebe Palmer and her writings. She was born into an American Quaker family, but she felt Quakerism was just a a pious list of do's and don'ts. There wasn't enough freedom in Quakerism. So what do you do when you don't have enough freedom? You join the Plymouth Brethren. (laughs) Well, she was basically very impressed with their commitment to the Bible. Well, her husband, Robert, was the very first to receive the holiness blessing at a Phoebe Palmer rally. Hannah, at the time, was heavily pregnant, and so she couldn't go to the meeting to get it. But eventually she did, and Robert and Hannah Pearsall-Smith's rise to prominence was extremely quick. Hannah, in particular, was a very gregarious, outgoing character. She was also a very popular, a very charismatic speaker. But both husband and wife became very popular holiness preachers all over America. They just toured from town to town, village to village, city to city. And eventually they brought their holiness teaching to England. And it began to become pretty popular over here too, as they set up their holiness meetings. But we need to stop for a second, and we need to cut to the sleepy Lakeland town of Keswick itself, nestling in the shadow of Skiddle Mountain. Because at that time, the vicar of St. John's Church in Keswick was a guy with a very, very impressive name, Thomas Dundas Harford Battersby. Isn't that a great name, eh? Now, without wishing to sound like an inverted snob, with a name like that in the 19th century, it might not surprise you to hear he was Oxford educated. (laughs) But he was also very heavily influenced by Newman and the Tractarians. So after he was ordained, he served an Anglo-Catholic curacy down in Gosport. And while he was there, through his work and through his study, he came to the conclusion that Anglo-Catholicism didn't quite line up with a lot of what the Bible taught. So as an ordained minister, he decided to theologically change direction. He looked for a second curacy that would put him straight in evangelical doctrine. So he served his second curacy at St. John's Church in Keswick. Bit of a change from industrial Gosport, I feel. But even though on his own admission he didn't feel equipped or even worthy of the post, when the vicar of St. John's died suddenly, he was promoted to vicar. Well, it's probably fair to say that Battersby was never satisfied with his own personal holiness. He didn't meet his own high standards of what a Christian should be, how a Christian should live, their everyday life. And to be honest, that stayed with him on and off throughout his life. But it was while he was on holiday in Silleth on the Cumbrian coast in 1873 that he first heard of this holiness teaching. And he went to a special holiness tent rally. He then read a book by Robert Pearsall Smith. And the next year, 1874, he was invited to a conference at Oxford where this holiness stuff would be taught and discussed. Hannah Pearsall Smith herself was the headline act. But there were other speakers too. Some of them were British. One in particular was to become an important figure at Keswick, a guy called Evan Hopkins. 
And it was while Harford Battersby was listening to Evan Hopkins preaching on the miracle of the centurion's son, he got this holiness blessing himself. And it sort of serves as a good example of how it worked, how you moved from one state to a higher state of holiness. Now, I um, came across... Um, completely by accident, this book, which is an incredibly rare book. If you want to uh, have a look at it after, you can do. Um, It's actually a a biography of Thomas Dundas Harford Battersby written by his sons. Now, um, they didn't do a wide publication. In fact, his sons just self-published a limited number of uh, copies. And uh, I found this, those of you who are... um, uh, who are old kill people will know that there was something called the Namagongo Book Room. And the Namagongo Book Room is people where they, they sort of took took their books that they didn't want anymore. And if any of us wanted them, then we could actually go and uh, pay a, a, a donation to the Namagongo um, United Martyrs Seminary and we could take whichever books we wanted uh, from there, which was really good. And I came across this book in the Namagongo book room. I just like I struck gold. Um, it's interesting, James Hughes is here today. There is a true story about James Hughes in the Namagongo book room. I don't know whether you know it. Um, but James Hughes, when he was the senior student at Oak Hill, um, he used to buy books by the yard from the uh, Namagongo book room. He would literally just go in, get a yard of books, and so his book shelf would look very impressive. <laughs> It's absolutely true. <laughs> Phil, you tell that story, that story like I'm the only person who does that. <laughs> You're the only one who admitted it was true. <clears throat> but anyway, um, in, this, in this biography, which is a really, really interesting read, um, it quotes what happened at that Oxford conference. It's the only record of what happened and how he came into this higher life blessing. Now, remember, the whole idea is that you surrender all to Jesus. Do that, and he will deal with the problem of sin in your life. So this biography says this. He, that's Evan Hopkins, distinguished between the seeking faith of which the centurion came to Christ and the resting faith with which he believed the words of Jesus, thy son liveth. And I said to myself, has my faith not been a seeking faith when it ought to have been a resting faith? And so why not exchange it for the latter? And so I thought of the sufficiency of Jesus and I said, I will rest in him. And I did rest in him. I said nothing to anyone of this, for I was afraid lest it should be a passing emotion. But I found that a presence of Jesus was graciously manifested to me in a way that I knew not before, and that I did abide in him. And in the morning I woke with a sweet sense of his blessed presence and indwelling, which has continued ever since. That was his description. There are many other similar ones of this great sense of ecstatic peace after moving into this higher state of holiness. I haven't got time to unpack it now, but it's one, I had a really, really interesting conversation with Philip Hacking about this feeling uh, of of heightened feeling of emotion after. He's got some really fascinating stuff. Talk to me over coffee uh, if you want about that. 
Well, Harford Battersby, after he sort of moved into this higher uh, state of holiness, wanted to spread the message. So he, along with some other like-minded clergy in Keswick and other parts of the Lake District, decided to hold their own holiness convention. They put posters out inviting people to come. I did find an original flyer in the Keswick archive. And uh, I haven't got time to read it to you, but it is a fascinating read. Um, Modern-day... Um, Graphic artists would go mad at it. It basically was about a 300-word thing, t- neatly typed um, on, a, on, a, on a sheet. But it is a fascinating read. It's in the appendix of my um, dissertation. So what they did is they pitched a tent in the back garden of St John's Vicarage in Keswick, and he invited the Pearsall Smiths, and they invited the invitation to come and speak. But then the convention nearly didn't happen because the Pearsall Smiths wrote and cancelled at the very last minute. They mysteriously and very suddenly went back to America. Basically what had happened is that Robert had had a nervous breakdown. And it would be fair to say that he spent the rest of his life involved in all kinds of weird things, including some very sort of psychosexual stuff. And that was the reason that Hannah reverted to using her maiden name in her later work, distancing herself, distancing herself from her husband's ideas. Interestingly, useless piece of trivia for you, their daughter, Hannah and Robert's daughter, Alice, went on to marry Bertrand Russell. And uh, although they separated in 1911 and they divorced in 1921, and Bertrand Russell said that Alice's mother, Hannah, was very controlling and cruel. Quite sad, isn't it? But back in Keswick, other speakers were found and the convention went ahead as planned starting on June the 29th, 1875. It was very well attended for the time. About 300 people attended. It was very successful. So it was decided to do it again next year. And so it has continued to the present day, 146 years later. And of course, it still usually meets in a tent I don't think it did this year because of the, the smaller numbers, but it usually meets in a tent. So then in terms of the doctor... Was someone still in a tent this year? I was there. Oh, were you? There you go. Some of it was still in a tent. Well, it wouldn't be Keswick if it wasn't in a tent, would it? So then in terms of the doctrine of holiness at Keswick, in its first 20 years, it developed its own particular brand of holiness. It wasn't just a transplant of the American version. It became very respectable and very anglicised. Characters like Bishop Handley Mole, the Bishop of Durham, were regular speakers at Keswick, as was the guy who spoke at that Oxford conference, Evan Hopkins. Now, it's really tricky to define what Keswick actually believed in regard to holiness. It is a very slippery subject. If you'd have asked anyone, what does Keswick believe? They would answer, Keswick doesn't believe anything. Keswick is a convention. It is a meeting. A meeting can't believe anything. But it's fair to say that whatever it was, it absolutely dominated British evangelicalism for the next 80 or so years. You couldn't say, Keswick says this, and mainstream evangelicalism says that. And it's not that long ago, not that long ago, that Keswick holiness teaching was mainstream evangelical teaching in this country. So what did Keswick holiness teaching have at its heart? Was it just another form of perfectionism? 
Well, the preachers would have said, no, definitely not. But what Keswick did was to unashamedly develop their own formula. You see, if people were coming together for five days, later a whole week, then there was no need to rush through the whole surrender to Jesus thing and get the blessing on the first night. I mean, what would you do for the rest of the week? (laughs) So this formula worked day by day through the Keswick week. And it was designed to get the hearer to a particular place where they were ready and so could receive the holiness blessing. The former Oak Hill principal, David Peterson, has written on this subject in his book, Possessed by God, and he calls it a holiness theological construct. A set of particular themes and sermons constructed to get people to a particular point of crisis, where they could receive the blessing and be made holy. Now, the problem that we might immediately see is that you're not allowing the word to dictate what's taught. You know what you want to teach, and you can hang your Bible passages around it. Now, I do not want to be controversial or upset people, as I've done when I've spoken on this in the past, but I wonder if you can see how lots of historical organisation, for example, some well-known Christian summer camps, grew out of Keswick. Of course, there's nothing wrong with teaching thematically, but I do think that care needs to be taken to make sure that scripture is the thing that is dictates what's taught, rather than get on a steamroller of teach what you want to teach with the Bible text conveniently hanging off the sides of the steamroller, sometimes clinging on for grim death, sometimes managing it, sometimes not. So what was this pattern of Keswick holiness theological construct? Well, it became known affectionately as the God-given sequence. The God-given Keswick sequence. So this is what it went like. Monday night, sin in the life of the believer. On the first day, the problem of indwelling sin in the life of the believer had to be dealt with. Keswick's teaching recognises that man's enslaved to sin by consequence of the fall. Sin is offensive to God's perfection and you can only be freed from its power by Christ. Tuesday is all about God's remedy for sin. The power of the cross is the theme on the Tuesday night. Keswick teaching is clear that the believer relies on the work of the cross not only to effect forgiveness of sin but also achieve victory over it. Now, a really important uh, book on this this subject is uh, this book. Uh, It's a little tiny book, uh, and it's called The Message of Keswick and Its Meaning, and it sort of explains through the Keswick Week. It's also quite a rare book. You can pick it up on Amazon if you want to, but please feel free to have a quick squiz at mine. It says this, Freedom from sin's dominion is a blessing we may claim by faith just as we accept pardon. Christians are encouraged to abandon any efforts of self-improvement. So a popular Keswick phrase is, let go and let God. Wednesday night is consecration night. Cleansing and forgiveness has to be followed by a total and absolute surrender to the Lordship of Christ. It's made clear that there'll be no victory over sin without total surrender. And Keswick teaching stressed that while there were still areas of the believer's life that they hold on to, Christ can't be Lord and power over sin is impossible. The step is always seen as one of the most difficult. The Keswick book again says this, 
Consecration is a sad and often painful episode, but one which needs to be faced frankly. Breaking away from the carnal conformity to the world and its bondage is not easy. But the alternative is to have a lack of power in one's testimony. Partial dedication is always fatal. Many earnest Christian people have gone to Keswick with a great desire to enter fullness of blessing and have returned from the convention without obtaining the coveted gift. Nothing is likely to happen until there is a willingness to lay everything at the feet of Christ. Well, Thursday was the filling of the Holy Spirit. Traditionally, Thursday was known as Crisis Day at Keswick. And there was a popular saying amongst the speakers, don't forget, no crisis before Thursday. No crisis before Thursday. Matea and Hacking both said to me, that was very much still the case in their time. This crisis involved receiving the fullness of the Holy Spirit as the believer received the blessing of sanctification. So you can see, get it sorted in the right order and you get the blessing. You become a holy, sanctified Christian. Now, perhaps the most crucial chapter is Romans chapter 6. And this passage has been preached on more than any other in the convention history. The whole doctrine of, in fact, the second blessing of sanctification stands on an interpretation of Romans 6. Hannah Whittle-Smith herself said that Romans 6 is an unanswerable argument for our practical deliverance from sin. Now, of course, they used the authorised version of the Bible, and that's what they were arguing from. And this is how the interpretation kind of worked. So I'll pick out a few verses for you. So first of all, you've got that phrase, we've died to sin, in verses 2, 10, and 11. Now, Keswick would say that that's talking about the Christian after this sanctification blessing. It means that they've now become unresponsive to sin in their life. Their old nature has been crucified with Christ. We have now died to sin. Okay? The next phrase was, the old man was crucified. Now, the old man is the believer's old nature that existed before they became a Christian. And then also in verse 6, it says, so that the body of sin might be destroyed. That's the sinful human body which has been destroyed, then made new because of Christ's death. Verse 6 again, in order that we might no longer be enslaved to sin. So now there is no need to sin because of the death of Christ. That's given the Christian victory over the whole of it or it has over our lives. So then finally in verse 11, so reckon yourselves dead to sin and alive to Christ. That's believing that there is no need to sin because of the sanctification gained through the cross. That's how they interpreted it. Are they watertight arguments from Romans 6? Keswick reckoned so. And you can maybe at some level see how they make those exegetical moves. They use lots of illustrations to prove their position. Evan Hopkins' favourite illustration, which he pretty much used every year, if you read through the Keswick yearbooks, was this. When a woman's husband dies, his wife ceases to exist as a wife. She is still a woman, but not someone's wife. 
Her status has changed. The analogy being, like the woman still being a woman, we might still be human, but our status as a human has changed because the thing that causes us to be sinful doesn't exist anymore. Our old sinful nature has been crucified. It's died and it's been buried with Christ. Now, as we'll see, it's all down to interpretation. The real problem is you can't help it. It ultimately does collapse into a form of of perfectionism. If that theological interpretation is correct, then you literally can't and won't sin anymore. Well, if that's Thursday, you're not at the end of the week yet. You've still got Friday. You've had your crisis. What do you do about Friday? Well, on Friday, you had God's call to service. At the very earliest conventions, there was a strong feeling that a missionary focus would maybe detract from the main uh, stuff they were trying to achieve at Keswick. But think about it. Once a Christian has reached this victory over sin, a natural response is to offer yourself in the service of God. Now, lots of people don't realise this, but absolutely loads and loads and loads of famous missionaries from the 19th and 20th centuries, were first called to full-time ministry on Friday at the Keswick Convention. In the early days of Keswick, the great Hudson Taylor was a leading figure. He often preached at the Friday meeting when characters such as Amy Carmichael were first called to mission work. In fact, Amy Carmichael was the first missionary to be fully funded by the Keswick Convention. And, oh, I better not get on this, but <laughs> I am the archivist of the Keswick Convention and uh, sometimes I tear my hair out. I better talk this just in case James Robson ever sees this. But um, I sometimes tear my hair out because um, there is a beautiful, beautiful section of the convention archives which are the, um, the minutes of the... Uh, missionary committee, the Keswick Missionary Committee. And the minutes of the Keswick Missionary Committee contain all the reports of missionaries that the Keswick has funded. And they are amazing. So you've got handwritten letters from Amy Carmichael there in the archives. And sadly, the archives are kept in damp, horrible cupboards and they are falling to bits. It is absolutely tragic that that happens but if you want you I mean I when I was doing my research for my I just got completely sidetracked one day just reading these minutes from these missionary uh, committee meetings because they're absolutely fantastic reading what God has been doing uh, in different parts of the world and they are just amazing 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 reading But over the years, lots of missionary societies and organisations have sprung out of Keswick as well, including the now infamous, dare I say, uh, Ewan Camp movement. Norman Grubb, who planted the seeds of InterVarsity Fellowship, was a big Keswick man. And in 1928, after discussions long into the night, the plans were put together for its formation at the Keswick Convention. Well, we need to stop there. We've run out of time, but I wonder whether it's worth just stopping for a minute to reflect personally on all this. Because one of the constant themes of testimony, 
whether that would be from the New Testament writers or characters like Augustine or Aquinas or Luther, right through to Battersby himself, is a sort of dissatisfaction with personal sin in their lives. I don't know what your thoughts are about the higher life holiness that I've been talking about are, but I wonder as God's Holy Spirit is at working our lives, transforming us to be more like Jesus, are we dissatisfied at our own sinfulness? In a sense, I hope so. That is not to belittle and play down the truth that we are made righteous through the blood of Jesus on the cross for us and we are safe and we are secure with him forever. But is there that deep desire to put sin to death? Have we got that yearning to be more like Jesus that we had from Luther and Aquinas and Augustine and Battersby? So much so that we're not willing to settle for a sort of acceptable level of sin in our lives. Well, let's ask God to shine his light into dark areas of our lives.